please turn with me to the book of Judges. We're continuing our study in the book of Judges. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time here kind of helping us get our, our bearings again into the book of Judges and where we are and where we're going and what we're going to do. Maybe spend a little bit of time, a few minutes talking about some things we didn't finish covering two weeks ago. So hopefully this will all uh, kind of make sense and, and gel together as we uh, kind of talk through some things. The book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges, the, the main theme of that book is the need for a king. And as we go through the book of Judges, it becomes very obvious that the people of Israel need a king. And so in this sense, the book of Judges is a very Christ-focused book. This book of Judges helps us, helps the Israelites and us see that they and we need a king. There's kind of three sections, and of course that ultimate king being Jesus. There's, there's three sections to the book of Judges. There's the introduction in chapters 1 and 2 and the first couple verses in chapter 3. And then there's a, a main section, and there's kind of this downward spiral that takes place in the main section as we see the effects of Israel going into apostasy, falling away from the faith. And then there's this, this last section, a conclusion, where we see just the, the horrific nature of life in Israel without a king. And what we're doing in our beginning of the study of the book of Judges is focusing on this introduction we started it two weeks ago, we're continuing it this morning, and in this introduction, we see how Israel became apostate, how Israel, that word apostate means to, to fall away. So you're, at one point, Israel is professing right worship of God, and then they are no longer engaged in right confession of God, they've, they've fallen away. This first section of the book of Judges helps us understand how a community of faith can become apostate, how a community of faith can fall away. And apostasy, falling away from the faith, is not some abstract theological issue, right? This is not some theological conundrum that we think about theoretically. What would it be like for, for a church or a, an individual to fall away? This is something that is that is deeply personal for us as a church. I've had many conversations with some of you over the past two weeks. This is a, an issue that affects all of us who love the Lord and who love other people. Because all of us, or nearly all of us, who would profess faith in Jesus Christ can think of people we love who at one time professed faith in Christ and now no longer do. We're talking about our, our sons, our, our daughters, our brothers and sisters, our, our parents and, and other family members. We're, we're thinking about our, our best friends. All of us, or at least nearly all of us, if not all of us, can think of people we love who at one time professed faith in Christ. They, they, they held to the gospel and now they, they no longer do, either through their words or their actions. It's, it's clear that there's, there's a time of falling away from them, and it's, it's 
deeply concerning for us who love them. This isn't abstract. This isn't some interesting theological puzzle to think about. What does it mean for a person to become apostate? No, this is, this is personal for us. People we love are, are not walking with the Lord right now. They're not affirming the gospel. And it causes us sorrow, right? We're going to be talking more about apostasy as we go through the book of Judges. But as we begin the book of Judges, in these first couple of chapters, we're, we're kind of ask, answering the question, why? Or, or how can this happen? And in these, these first two chapters, and a little change in chapter 3, we're, we're seeing different paths that the people took from confession of faith, right worship of Yahweh, into apostasy. And here's kind of the main idea that we're thinking about, the, the main theme that we're thinking about and, and that we want us to, to, to consider as a church. We want to flee the paths that lead to falling away from the faith and instead cling to Christ. We want to flee the paths that lead to falling away from the faith and instead we want to cling to Christ. And we began talking about this last week. I, I kind of presented it in a little bit of a confusing way. Let, let me kind of re-say what I I'm talking about as we look at chapters 1 and 2, there's kind of two paths that are presented here at the beginning of the book of Judges, and both of these paths lead to apostasy. The first chapter describes a, a failure to rightly worship God. It describes this, this thing we call syncretism, where you take a true faith and you take idolatry and you start practicing idolatry, but you use the, the terminology of the true faith and you kind of mesh these things together. And the second path involves failing to disciple children. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit more about this, this first path. So the two paths that, that can lead to apostasy, and, and the first path is to call idolatry Christianity. This is how a church can become apostate. You can call idolatry Christianity. In uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses tells the people of Israel, See, I, I've taught you statutes and, and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, all these, these rules, these, these instructions that God has given you, they will say, well, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So what Moses envisions is that the people of Israel are to go into the land and they're to follow God and his word. And the people of the, the nations are, are to say, well, there's something different about the people of Israel but that's not what takes place. Instead, the people of Israel go into the land and they begin, to, they begin to adopt the manners and the culture that they are surrounded by. In fact, here's, um, we kind of talked about some of the different steps in beginning to, for a community of faith to adapt to its culture. You can, one, kind of go through these real quickly. You can call as you begin to call idolatry Christianity, you can adopt a worldly methodology. We talked a lot about that last time. And so the people of, of Israel, they, 
start off strong in the book of Judges, but very quickly they begin to adopt a worldly methodology we saw in verses 1 through 15. Secondly, they can fear what the world fears. They can fear what the world fears in verses 16 through 21. Again, you see the people of Israel beginning to, to fear the iron chariots, the very iron chariots that God said they would be able to defeat. Instead, they begin to fear those things. And so a, a, a community of faith begins to, uh, begins to to fall away from the faith as they fear the same things that the world fears. How am I going to get and, and, and obtain and keep all the things that the world wants to, to keep and to get and to obtain. And then thirdly, you can tolerate compromise and disobedience. And in verses 22 through 26, there's this story of a, a person helping the Israelites. And instead of like Rahab becoming a part of the community of faith, the Israelites allow this person to just simply exist in the midst of their culture apart from being a part of the community of faith. Four, you can live immersed in the world. In verses 27 through 36, describe the people of Israel not living in the land of Canaan as Israelites, as worshipers of Yahweh God, but instead becoming more and more like those who are surrounding them. They fail to remove those who are worshiping other gods, and so the land that they are in is surrounded by paganism, and they begin to become pagans themselves. And we see as in a church, immersion is inevitable in our culture, but we have to, and we have to consciously fight against it. We don't stay true to the faith simply by being a part of the culture. And then finally, the last step was to worship other gods. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. One of the paths to apostasy, one of the paths for a church to, to go from being a church that affirms the gospel to, to a church that's fallen away from the gospel, from the truth, is, is to begin to call idolatry, idolatry Christianity, to, to get immersed in our world and begin to do the same things that our world does, value the same things that the culture does, and call it Christianity, but in reality, be practicing what we call syncretism, worshiping, worshiping the gods of our world instead of Yahweh God. The second path that we're going to look at this morning, that a church or community of faith can walk on, that takes it from being a, a church that's going to affirm the gospel to a church that's apostate, the other path is a path where we don't disciple kids. Don't disciple kids. And turn there to Judges chapter 2. We're going to read this together. And by together, I'm going to read it, and you're going to follow along if that's okay. And uh, if you would... Go ahead and stand with me in honor of God's word as we read these verses. I'm going to begin in verse 6. So this is describing this second path of apostasy. One path of apostasy is to, to begin to call idolatry Christianity. The second path, and the path that we're looking at this morning, is to fail to disciple our children who are in the church. Here's what we read beginning in verse 6. I'm going to go a little bit beyond verse 10, I think. So here's what, here's what we read, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. So he's kind of going back to some things that happened in chapter 1. And the people, verse 7, served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried with him 
uh, they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain Gaish. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Verse 11, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. You may be seated. And Heavenly Father, we are in in awe and fear of you this morning as we think about our awesome responsibility as a church to care for children, the children that you and your grace have given us. We pray that we would not fail in this crucial task. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I want you to look at verse 10 again there in chapter 2. And, and think about what's, what's happening. It says, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So, so think about the generations that have taken place that the book of Judges is describing. First of all, there's, there's Joshua's generation. Now, Joshua's generation is the generation that died in the wilderness. Joshua and Caleb, their generation dies in the wilderness because of their unbelief. They are preserved, and they lead the next generation, the generation that's born in the wilderness. They lead that generation into the promised land. And that generation accomplishes some incredible things, right? They are a generation that believes the Lord, they believe his promises, and they do incredible things. Some have called them Israel's greatest generation, and that that title fits for many reasons. So that generation does amazing things. They see God do mighty things. They see God's punishment on their parents. They hear from their parents about some of the things that God did in, in delivering them out of Egypt. Some of them, if they were very young, could have experienced that exodus out of Egypt. They, they've seen God do phenomenal things, and they've, they've heard about the phenomenal things that God has done. They see God bring them into the promised land and fulfill his, fulfill his promises. But then Joshua dies, and, and all that generation that was part of bringing them into the land, that generation dies as well. And now there's a new generation. And verse 10 tells us something quite astonishing about that generation. It says, this generation that, that comes after that generation that was involved in the conquering did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, how is that possible? How is it that this new generation didn't know who God was and what he had done? Who dropped the ball? Who, who failed this generation? There's two groups to consider. Now, by the way, we know that every person... Every person that was a part of this generation, every, part, every person that's part of, of our church has an a individual responsibility to respond to God and his revelation and, and to worship him. Every person is individually culpable. But verse 10 says something very specific. There's, there's things that these people who are part of this generation didn't know. In other words, someone had not communicated to them who God was and what he had done. And by the way, God's 
God's person and his work are closely connected in Scripture. Someone had dropped the ball. Who was it? There's two groups that I want us to focus on this morning in terms of who had a responsibility, who had a culpability to communicate the truths about who God is and what he had done to this generation. One is the community of faith. And I want us to think about how the church, as we think about this, the application for us, I want us to think, first of all, here about how the church disciples. There's apostasy here. There's falling away. These children didn't know. This generation didn't know who God was and what he was supposed to do. The community of faith should have been engaged in discipling. As we think about the, as we think about the application for us, the church is a group that is supposed to, as a body, be discipling. In verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2, the inevitable takes place. Because they didn't know who God was and what he had done, it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. So they, they, they don't know who God is, and so they begin to worship these other gods. They abandon God. They provoke God to anger. As we come to Scripture, we see many biblical examples of the entire community of faith practicing discipleship. We see that there is a corporate nature to discipling children. Corporate means, means the body. We, we have this, this corporate, this body-wide responsibility to, to disciple children. How do we see that? Well, one way we see it is that there's a, a corporate desire in Scripture for children to know the Lord. Kirk read from, from Psalm 78 before he prayed, right? And re- remember what it says there. It says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to my words of my mouth. That's how the chapter begins. I'm going to open my mouth in a parable. I'm going to utter dark sayings from of old. So he's speaking to a, a corporate group, things that we, this, this corporate group, have heard and known, things that our fathers told us. We're not going to hide them. We're going to tell the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he's done. You see there again the connection between who he is and and what he's done? God has established a testimony in Jacob, appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to to their children. So there is a corporate desire that exists within a church, within a community of faith, that our children would know the Lord. And that desire extends on into coming generations. We're thinking about kids who aren't even born yet. We're thinking about kids who are going to be part of future child dedications where I'm going to mess up their names and the names of their parents. Like that's, we're thinking about those generations as well and, and their children. That's a corporate desire that they would know the things of the Lord. And then there's a, a corporate, we also see in Scripture, corporate culpability. Like there's a, a corporate responsibility and culpability when we see children who, who don't know the Lord. We, we feel that, that, that weight of that. In the book of Leviticus, we, we see that, that the people of Israel, as, as a, a young man blasphemes the name of the Lord, those who hear him, who are part of the community, feel a responsibility to, 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 to take that to Moses and ultimately to ultimately be a part of, of stoning him. From the very beginning, there's this corporate sense of of desire to, and, and responsibility, culpability to, to, to disciple children. There's also a, a corporate discipleship we taking, taking place, a corporate action to disciple children. 
let me talk to those of you who are younger for just a second. How, how many of you are under the age of um, 18? How many of you are under 18? Okay, good, good. So quite a few, right? Okay, you can put your hands down. Me too. Um, one time I was under 18. You know that God, for those of you who are younger, do you know that God has expectations of you, right? God, in his word, there, there are expectations that God has. God believes, God tells you that you need to place your faith in his son, Jesus. God believes that you are to, to know his word. God tells you that you're to be obedient to mom and dad or, or other authority in your life. Those of you who are a little older, the uh, young people, God has expectations that you live in purity, that you, that you live right with, with people who are, who are also in, your, 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 in relationship with you. God has lots of expectations for you. He believes that you can live wisely, that you can um, protect your friends, you can walk in purity of mind, heart, and body, that you can desire your correction and wisdom from other people. So in other words, God has a lot of, those of you who are under 18, God has a lot of expectation for you. There's, there's things that he expects you to, to do and ways that he expects you to live as you walk in faith with Jesus. Now, how many of you are, are over 18? Yeah, how many of you are way over 18, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, how, how do, those of us who are over 18, how do we think that these children are going to learn about God's expectations? If God expects them to know his word, how are they going to know his word? It's not intuitive. How to treat a member of the, the opposite gender is not intuitive. How to, how to think about gender is not intuitive, right? How are they going to know those things? How does Scripture expect them to know those things? Scripture is very clear. Scripture envisions those of us who are older coming alongside younger people and engaging in discipleship. Paul tells Timothy, look, as you, as you interact with different generations, don't rebuke older men, uh, treat uh, encourage him like you would a father, and treat younger men like brothers. Treat younger women like sisters in all purity. There's this idea that you're going to be in relationship with them, teaching them things of God. Titus chapter 2 talks about discipleship among the generations as well. Young, uh, older women, you're, need to, you're to train young women, right? And so there's this expectation that we would be involved in discipleship, that we have a, a corporate responsibility to engage in discipleship. There's also, as we think about the church discipling, there's also corporate, there's corporate desperation, right? Corporate desperation. What does that mean? It means that as a church, there's, there's a sense of a feeling desperation on behalf of the parents for what they need and what they're going through. When I was a youth pastor, um, before I had children, I knew a ton about parenting. It was amazing. I was so wise, right? I mean, I knew, and then when I had kids, I instantly knew so much less. Right? I, was, I was listening to a, a woman on a podcast recently talking about um, how she confronted her parents. It was a young woman, and she confronted her parents, and uh, her parents are Indian. They, grew, they were born, raised in India, and they came to, to Canada. And, and she was talking to them, and she was confronting them. She said, why didn't you 
why didn't you force me to learn Hindi? And uh, the parents were like, well, we, we tried, but you, uh, you, you didn't want to learn. You didn't want to get up and go to the lessons. And she goes, yeah, but you're my parents. You should have forced me. And I'm listening to this thinking, yeah, 20 years ago, I thought the same thing, right? But na- now that I realize, okay, yeah, parents can force your kids to do a lot of things, but the relational cost is huge. There's, there's a corporate desperation as we think about how little we know about, about parenting. And th- there's, there's, there, uh, there's desperation for so many reasons. We, 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 want, to, we want others, we want to be a part of a, of a corporate body who's going to help care for our children. One, because we want prayer, right? Like if we're a parent, we want other people desperately lifting up our children to the Lord. Uh, we want other people encouraging us, right? If you're a, a parent, maybe you're a young parent, you say, I, I desperately need other people to encourage me. And what I'm doing is say, yeah, what you're doing is right. You need to stay the course. <laughs> my mom, my mom has a ministry in uh, young women's lives of telling them about how terrible I was as a child, which I guess is a compliment because I think she's telling, look, my Daniel, let me tell you about things Daniel did whenever he was that age and tell him about how terrible I was. And now he's in this story and now he's a pastor. So, you know, uh, you know, there, but there's that ministry that, oh, that a church can have to, to parents say, look, you're, you're doing the right thing. You're, you're doing the right thing as you proclaim the gospel to your children. There, we, we, as we, we also have this corporate desperation because we need correction as parents. We, need, we should want others to come along us and say, hey, you know what? I, I know what you're going through is tough, but, but this is kind of the right way to think about what you're doing. And here's how what you're doing may not be the most biblical thing in terms of, of parenting your child. We also have this corporate desperation because we need perspective, right? This kid is, is we need someone to come along beside us and say, yeah. Your kid is throwing a temper tantrum, and, and yes, that's sinful, and yes, it needs to be dealt with, and, and yes, you, you need to, to do the appropriate things to care for this, this child and to discipline them and to train them. But you know what? All kids do this, right? This is not something that is unique to you and your parenting. Your child is not some <laughs> unique um, demonic spawn or what, you know, whatever. This is not... Um, not unique for you, right? We need to share that knowledge to be a resource for parents with this cross-generational ministry. What I'm saying is this, the, the church, the body disciples, the community is responsible, and we need to do all we can to be a church that communicates that. I saw a, a video uh, this, this past week, and, and maybe some of you saw this as well. It's, it's of a, a, a pastor who's, who's preaching, and his, his sermon gets interrupted by a, a child crying, a 15-month-old. And and I don't know the context. I don't know uh, exactly what happened. I don't know hardly anything about the church. And I'm, I believe that if a pastor could do things differently, if he had to do over, he would. But, but what I saw, <laughs> it looked bad, right? Uh, he said this. He, the, the kid starts crying. You, you can't even hear the kid crying. And, and that the pastor stops his sermon and asks the ushers. He says, hey, can you guys show them where the nursery is? I don't want to struggle with a, a, a crying child the whole time, so please help me out, right? And, and said in kind of a, a, a harsh way. It sounded like a harsh way. And then, and then he kind of realized, he kind of went on with the sermon, and he realized how oh, it sounded off, and he, and he kind of doubled down. And instead of just saying, hey, you know what? That probably came off the wrong way. You're so glad the kids are here. He just kind of doubled down on how important it was 
for kids not to cry in the service, right? Now, if a child is inconsolable, of, of course it's, it's good to, to remove them and help them get calmed down and things like that. But there's, there was an underlying tone that, I'm, again, I'm sure if he had the opportunity to, to say things differently, he would. But this is just what I want us to think about as, as Bethany community. There's an underlying tone to his words that, that seemed to convey uh, children aren't welcome. When in reality, what we want to constantly be communicating as, as church is that children, children are welcome. We don't want to be communicating, look, children are kind of this necessary thing that we care for so that we can care for the adults. <laughs> but we want to be communicating as a church and to our children, look, children are, are incredibly important to us and why we exist for a large reason of why we exist as a church, to, to help them know and to love the Lord. And maybe you can remember being small, and, and, or maybe you are small in a church this morning. Maybe you're an adult, and you can remember being small. And, and you can remember, or you can think about, there are some people who made you feel welcome, and some people who did not make you feel welcome, and they made you feel intimidated. I can think of Sunday school teachers and adults who, who were just so helpful to me throughout my, my childhood. The, the Sunday school teacher who just, it wasn't even a Sunday school teacher, it was just a guy who was volunteering to help out on a Sunday night, and it was just this, this, it was like a special Sunday night service, and they just kind of threw some people in there that were willing to watch the kids, and, and this guy just showed us magic tricks, and, and made the, t- and just kind of this, this kind person who cared for us. I can think about a, an older lady who was my second grade teacher in Sunday school, a, a fourth grade teacher who had us draw race cars, and we, as we memorized scripture, we'd move the race cars around the room. I can remember the Sunday school teacher who gave me a, my first study Bible to help me understand God's word more. I can think about youth leaders who were involved in discipling me on Saturday mornings and would, would go running with me, and then we'd do a Bible study. We'd have breakfast together. We'll talk more about this in a few minutes, but, but let's be a church that disciples, right? Let's be a church that welcomes our children, that's ready to say hi and to make our children feel loved and welcome because we have a corporate responsibility to disciple. And we'll come back to this in a few minutes. But here's, here's the second group that I want us to think about, the family, right? The family disciples. And if you have notes, you'll notice I've, I put a lot on the notes so you don't have to, to write a ton because I'm going to go through some of these things quickly. But there's some, some biblical principles that I want us to think about. Number one, Let's be thinking about the family unit discipling, because that's, that's a picture in Scripture as well, not just the corporate nature of discipleship of the family. Number one, we see in Scripture that all of life is discipleship, right? All of life is discipleship. If you are a parent, or maybe you're a foster parent, or a grandparent, or a guardian, all of your life is discipleship. Deuteronomy 6 says this in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your, your, your might. And, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as, as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. And the idea there is you can overliteralize what uh, Moses is saying there, but really what he's saying is, look, all of your life is, is discipleship, and wherever you are with your children, you should be engaged in helping them understand who God is and, and how he calls them to live. 
no matter what the, the, the circumstance of, of life that you find yourself in. Second principle we think about here that's biblical is that discipleship begins with loving the Lord. Think about the passage we just read. It talks about the things you're to do with your children, but before it talks about the things you're to do with your children, it talks about you. You're to know certain truths about God. The Lord our God is one. You're to know some doctrinal truths about the God you're worshiping. And then, and then what? Then you're to love him, not half-heartedly, but with your entire being, with all your heart, your soul, your might. And, and then, after you love God, you have the ability to communicate that love to your children, the love of God. A third biblical principle, as we think about the family's responsibility to disciple, is this, that number three, children are capable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ at an early age. Children are capable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ at an early age. My dad um, w- one time was talking with some people about what sort of children ministry philosophy they should have, and, and as he looked at the ministry philosophy for children, it was, it was quite complex, right? And the things that, that they wanted the children to know before they kind of affirmed them in the, in the faith were, were quite extensive. And, and my dad just kind of brought up Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, the disciples come to Jesus and say, who's the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus calls a child, puts him in the midst and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, my dad said that the point isn't to get children to become like adults, to give them some sort of intellectual, we aren't going to say, look, until our our children have the intellectual capacity to balance the tension between human responsibility and divine sovereignty and uh, predestination and election, until they can do that satisfactorily, we're not going to consider them full members of the community of faith. The reverse is true. We need to say, okay, like a child, my faith in Christ needs to be complete. My trust in him needs to be absolute. It's a reversal, right? We believe that the children at Bethany Community Church, we believe that the children who are in our home at a very early age are capable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ. And one of the, one of the coolest parts of my job is that I get a, to talk with children oftentimes before they're baptized, and a lot of them come in to my office, they sit down, they say, I say tell me about your story of faith, and they say, well, um, you know, I'm not sure when I first placed my faith in Jesus Christ, but I, I know right now my trust is in Jesus Christ alone, but I, and I know at some point I, I trust in him, but from as far back as I can remember, you know, low these many 11 years, you know, all, all, all I can remember is believing in Jesus because that's what my, my parents communicated to me about, about life. It's, it's what I believe. I know there's a moment I became a Christian, no idea when. It's beautiful, right? It's a beautiful thing. Children are capable of placing their faith in Jesus Christ at an early age. That shapes how we parent. It shapes how we disciple Fourth, parents seek redemption, not perfection. As parents, our goal is not to have these perfect little robots who make us look good in front of other people and their robot children. Our goal in Christ is to help them be redeemed, to have a transformed heart, not through their own efforts, but through the transforming work that only God can bring about. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good We don't believe that we can manufacture goodness. Now, I also believe that it's important for us as parents to have focused time where we are 
teaching our children God's word, where we're engaging in, in, in uh, worship together as a family. I, I think that's an important thing to do. Now, again, all of life is discipleship, but I think it's important for us to work into the rhythms of our lives, the ability to, to communicate biblical truths to our children. So a couple thoughts in that vein. One, these are just components of family devotion times that I think far too few of us prioritize. You know, we feed our children, hopefully, we feed our children physical food every day. And so, of course, we should be giving them spiritual nourishment every day. And so here, here are a couple thoughts as I think about components of family devotion times. Here's a, a few things to think through. One, you encourage a proper ha- heart attitude as you come together as a family to engage in worship. Uh, our family does this in the evenings, uh, generally. And so if things have not been going well during the day, that this forces us to, to, to get in the proper heart attitude as we enter into worship. Two, we make sure that we spend time reading God's Word together. And so other devotional things can sometimes be helpful, but I, I encourage parents to, to focus on at least reading God's Word. You look at 2 Timothy, and uh, Paul t- talks about the, uh, the efficacy of, of Scripture, and he talks to, to Timothy about how Timothy's grandmother and his mother taught him the things of, of Scripture, and, and Timothy can cling to those. He says, you know from whom you've, you've learned those things and believed. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for, for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we, we read God's Word together. We, thirdly, we, we pray together. There's, there's confession of sins. There's times of adoration, thanksgiving, praying for missionaries, pastors, the government, sick people. Uh, one of the things that someone in the church uh, did that kind of inspired us is we pray through Christmas cards that people give us and, and pray for families that way. You can sing together as a, as a, as a family. Uh, our family does not do this very well. In fact, if you, if you ask our children, what song do you remember singing as a, I don't know if I should tell this story. We've sung other songs, but if you ask my children, what song do you remember your dad singing with you as you read the Bible together? We had, before, they, when the kids were younger, we went through a word and song Bible. It's had like one story from each uh, book of the Bible about, and they can all remember me singing Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven when we got to the Stairway to Heaven uh, story. Um, that's not what we're talking about here, right? Um, that's not, again, that's something we can improve in as a family. And then you, uh, you apply, you apply God's word together. You apply God's word together uh, by God's grace, right? One of our elders asks his kids when they read the, the word together, what, is this, what does this text mean? What's it saying? And now what should we do? You know, what do we do with this? A couple of other thoughts as I think about this. You know, as, as parents, uh, I was talking to some uh, parents with younger kids this week, and you know, one of the things you do as, as a parent during this time of, of getting together to formally talk about God and his word, you, you set age-appropriate goals. You don't have this idea that you're going to be able to talk to your kids for 40 minutes who are five and six years old about some passage and, and, or, and read some commentary from the 1800s, right? Be cool. Like, don't do that to your kids. Right? They'll get there, Maybe. But set age-appropriate goals. Here, here's what we did, and I've shared this, this before. The, we had uh, older kids and, and younger kids kind of in, 
at one age, the, the, at one phase of life, the differences between their ages was greater than it is now. And so with our older kids, what we, with our, what we do is we first take our younger kids and we'd read just a, a short section of a, a kid's Bible and then we'd, we'd pray. It'd take three or four minutes, right? And so the, the kids are really young, maybe three years old or whatever. And then we'd say, hey, you guys, you don't have to listen to us as we read the Bible with your older siblings, but you just need to be quiet, okay? So here's some toys you can play. We want you to be in the living room with us, but you don't have to, you don't have to pay attention as we read a chapter of, of, the, of the big Bible with, with our older kids, right? In other words, you're just setting age, you're being realistic about what their capabilities are. I know of, of parents who got their kids up at 5 a.m. every morning to, to read the Bible. Don't do that to your children. If, you know, like, Set age-appropriate goals and have realistic expectations for your time together and, and be consistent, right? Be consistent. Our, our family, um, I, I had this modeled for me, and our, our family uh, has been able, by God's grace, to, to read through the Bible uh, as a whole several times just by taking about 15 minutes a day and, and doing this as a family. Don't be legalistic and enjoy this time together. You know, this, this time together should include tangents. There are, uh, you know, we have about 10, 15 minutes where we're reading the Bible together, but we sometimes are on the couch, uh, you know, 45 minutes as the kids are just going on all of these crazy rabbit trails, and uh, it's, it's just a fun time together, and that needs to continue to be the case. That needs to, it's all about uh, fostering relationship and helping your children know, look, here's who God is, and here's what he's done. Last thing to think about then is just discipleship in the church. A couple, couple other thoughts here. Some of this overlaps with what we've talked about earlier. How do you apply this? You, say you're a parent. Let's say you're single. Let's say you're a single parent. Maybe you are an empty nester. Maybe no children. How, how does this apply? We need to love our children, and we need to pursue relationship with the, the children in our church so the children feel loved and welcomed at Bethany Community Church and can hear who God is and what he has done. Practically, that means as an adult, if you're an adult, I'm talking to those of you who raised your hand who said you're over 18 or way over 18, um, what that means is you need to, as best you can, learn our children's names, <laughs> Learn the, learn the names of the children in the church. Provide opportunities to be in relationship with them. When you see kids in the hallway, ask them questions as you have opportunity. And be okay if they're a little nervous. And, and don't force them Don't force them to have a long conversation. Give them grace. But, but let the kids who are in our church know that they are loved and welcomed and that you care about them. Try to, When you hear something about a kid in our church, try to remember that and, and ask them about it later. Find out the things that they're interested in. Participate in corporate worship. Prioritize being in this room on a Sunday morning and with our children. Sing at church so they can hear God's people singing. Teach as God gives you opportunity. You know, as, as a special plea, as a father, please help disciple our children. Go through our screening process and get involved in our nursery ministry. Get involved in, in being there to, to help children feel loved and welcomed in our nursery. Be there in our children's ministry participate in the singing and the teaching the games. Be a person that welcomes our children and lets them feel loved and welcomed. Your ministry has changed 
the course of my children's lives. My children love the church because of the people who are in the church who have loved them. Get involved in youth ministry if that is where God has called you. If you're single or retired, please know, as a, this is me speaking as a parent of teens, I need people who are at different stages of life than I am to reaffirm the gospel truths to my kids, its power and its beauty. I need that. I need desperately you to come alongside me in the discipleship of my children. There's a downward spiral. That's the last thing we see here, a downward spiral of apostasy. And we're going to begin, we'll talk about this next week. But it's described in verses 13 through 19. And what happens, we see in verses 13 through 19, is the people sin, and then God puts them into servitude, and then he provides a judge that brings salvation. And it's this, this cycle, sin, servitude, salvation. Then they sin, there's, they put into servitude and their salvation. It happens again and again and again, this downward spiral that ends in apostasy. But how does it begin? It begins, we see in the book of Judges, through a church calling idolatry true worship, a community of faith calling idolatry true worship, and a community of faith failing to disciple its children. By God's grace, let's disciple the children that he has graciously given us and help them see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We thank you for the ability we have by faith in Jesus Christ to, to walk in love. And we pray that we would communicate the beauty of Jesus to the precious children that you've given us. Help us to be faithful in discipling them, that, to, to see our corporate responsibility, uh, to come alongside parents and, and care for these, these, these wonderful children. Help the children who are in our church, even the church in this room this morning, help our children to feel loved and help them see the beauty of your son Jesus and to believe the gospel, to trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.